Welcome to the Forensic Cop Podcast. This is LFC Core. Looking forward. Looking back. Does Naby Keita have a future in this Liverpool team? So, I mean, it kind of depends what game you see him, and even more than that, what play in what game you see him, because some plays he looks like he's, you know, destined to be great with Liverpool, and some plays he just looks like he's on the wrong team, and and it's just not going to work out. But he's such a good player, and I remember when we were chasing him, he was also being looked at by clubs like Real Madrid, Barcelona, and... Rightly, too, because he is a good player. He's just been unfortunate with injuries, and he's had a tough start Liverpool career. And I think, as I mentioned in one of the previous podcasts after the West Ham game, that um, this Liverpool team may have moved uh, m- moved on from him. I mean, I don't think you can question his ability. You know, there are uh, numerous times that I can think of that he's made it through literally four guys. He just has this ability to somehow slowly dribble um, and just he gets around people and through people. He's got the nice little moves, bring it from one side to the other, make a guy miss on a, on a swipe through. Um, you know, he finds himself in situations where he's on net. Like there are great moments that you see his skill and his quality and you see why, as you said, Barca and uh, and Real and everybody else was looking at him, but I just I don't know. I mean, has the team moved on? Like, why would the team have moved on? He's been here for almost two years now. Why wouldn't he have moved along with the team? So I think when we got Fabinho, Klopp was looking for a number six. He was he he had decided that he wanted a holding midfielder, and we didn't see Fabinho in the team for half the season. First of all, right because he knew that he needed to give Fabinho time to get used to the plays, but he was already forming the Liverpool team in such a way that it needed a number six. So it was a a smooth transition between Henderson to Fabinho once Fabinho was up and running. With Keita, whose position is he taking from this team? Is he replacing Wijnaldum? He he doesn't offer that skill set. Is he replacing Henderson? Likewise. Is he replacing Fabinho? No. So... Klopp would have to transform this Liverpool team again in order to fit in the qualities that Keita provides in order for him to be productive. And I don't see any evidence of Klopp wanting to change the way this team is functioning right now because we rely on the hardworking midfield three, the the wingers and the assists that they provide, and then a a um, front three that is clinical and interchangeable. So where does Keita fit into that? So I think I would agree with you. I mean, he is not in the Fabinho position. He is not a defensive midfielder. That's not his role. I don't think he has that skill set. I would see him going forward. Um, so you would have to think he's in the Wijnaldum or Henderson position. That's who he would look to displace. Problem is, I agree with you. I don't see him in that mold. Um, you look at Genie and you look at Hendo and you're thinking these are guys with infinite engines they just keep running. Um, they challenge to get the ball back, all of that. And I just, I don't see Keita in that mold. Um, there have been a number of times, actually far too many times, that I feel like Keita has not kept the engine going. 
he he may pass the ball or lose the ball or whatever it is and he doesn't just flat out run at the guy that has the ball which is something you see with genie and with hendo and that's what our pressing system is predicated on so i mean to your point who's he replacing i actually don't know i think i think one of the biggest problems that navigator has is that he's too good to sit on the bench He's too good to not be a first 11 player and he needs to be playing he, he he needs to be one of the first names on the team sheet and i can't see him being one of the first 11 names on the on the team sheet unless we change the way and the style that we play well don't forget it's not just that he's too good to not be one of the 11 he's too expensive to not be one of the 11. yeah but i think that's relative now right so he how much did he cost 50 million right more than fab more than fab more than sala right but even like 20 times more than gomez like eight times more than robertson right but i don't think that's the deciding factor i i truly think that he was purchased to be a first 11 uh team player but he's he's too good to play the ox role where i think Oxley chamberlain joined Liverpool knowing that he would have a chance to compete for a first-team spot, but realistically, I think he's more than happy playing um, off the bench, starting a game out of maybe three or four. Well, hold on, because when Ox got pulled off at the 60-minute mark, what, two or three games ago, he was almost Mane-level pissed. Like, he was not happy right. to be pulled off. He talked about it, and the next game, uh, Klopp left him in the whole game. Yeah, no, and and of course he should be angry. I don't think anybody, which is why I question Origi's future in this team, not to get off track, but I think Origi is a little bit too comfortable being the number four striker, and that's a separate discussion. Like, I think he needs to get a little bit angry sometimes. But anyway, back to Ox. I think Ox knows that he's at Liverpool, and of course Klopp will give him the opportunity to become a first-team player, but realistically, I think he'll be more than happy playing a more than bit part role as long as he's able to contribute to this Liverpool team. The problem with Cater is I don't even know if I would say he's contributing to this team. Of course, yeah, he scores, he assists every now and then, but if he wasn't playing those games, we would still have scored and assisted in those games. Well, I don't know. I think you look at the West Ham game, I would almost say that we would we did better when Ox came in and Cater went out. So I oh, would I almost say, is he is he even hindering the team at this point when he's on oh i see what you're saying like you're saying we would win either way i'm saying maybe we wouldn't even have such close games if it wasn't for the guy yeah but to be fair i mean he he is contributing to the team in terms of he he is he is scoring and he is playing a part but i think so is ox so is ox right and and i don't think it's one or the other it's more a question of we are going to get another midfielder in the summer right lalana is going to leave shakira is going to leave uh, Minamino will probably take Shakiri's spot, but I think there will be space for an, a, 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 another midfielder to come in. Well, I mean, to your question of who's he going to replace, he's going to replace Genie or Hendo because Genie's contract is up after next year and Hendo's turning 30. So, you know, are these guys going to be able to keep pulling the way they're doing right now? I think Genie has already said he's interested in going back to uh, play for a team in the Netherlands. I think he'd like to end his career there. Um, you look at a guy like Hendo, I think Hendo might die on the field at like 32 or something. So like... That's a joke, by the way. 
I mean, I wish it was a joke, but he looks like he would literally give it his all, and I, I commend him for it, and I love him for it. But, like, the 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 anecdote from training where he had to be pulled off because he was at, like, heart attack rate, uh, heart issues. You know, this guy leaves it all out there, and I don't think you can keep doing that into your 30s. Okay. So, so... I, think, I think there are two places available on the team for a genie spot and for Hendo spot in the next year, year and a half. And I'd love to believe Kata is there, but do you actually think he'll be there? So two years from now, Genie is gone. Hendo is no longer the player he is because he's just, you know, father time wins. Who do you see being in that spot? And is Kata one of them? Okay. So obviously Fabinho will still be there. He's still young enough. He'll still be there. Jones may have a thing or two to say about a starting midfield position. Uh, Trent may have shifted or may start to shift into the midfield, not only because that is his natural position, but more importantly, and I think more relatively, is that um, Nico Williams is so good that he will start to, to deserve a, a, a uh, first-team spot at right back, which m may cause Klopp to transition Trent into the middle and then thus change change his... Um, f um, formation so that i i would agree i can see alexander arnold moving up because williams is just looking phenomenal his his growth is is outstanding i agree with you jones is um potentially got a place in two years because he is also on that looks to be on that trajectory um at the same time, I would say a guy like Minamino is a better replacement for Hendo or Genie because he's got a motor that goes forever, and he'll he'll be that pressing um, midfielder that Klopp likes much more than Keita is. Don't you see him more as a forward? I can see him in multiple spots, and I think that's why Klopp likes him. I can see him across the front three, but I could also see him as one of the attacking midfielders. Okay, so going back to Nabiketa, do we think that in two years he will be in the starting midfield for Liverpool? So sadly, I actually think if it's not this year, it'll be next year, at the end of next year, that he'll be sold to recover some of the money that was uh, paid for him. Not just the money, but also to, um, similar to the carrier situation where he was brought in to be the number one and he clearly wasn't good enough to be the number one. It's almost better to not have a failed number one in your team rather than somebody that is coming in to to back up the first team but then ends up growing into that position. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think uh I think if Keda hasn't proven it by the end of next year, which I don't think he will at this pace, um I think that we'll uh we'll see him moved on for somebody else to grow into that role. Well let's just hope to be surprised then. I mean I'm I'm hoping because the skill he has going forward and some of those uh, some of those runs he makes are just phenomenal, and I hope so. But I just I got a bad feeling that uh, whether it's because injuries are holding him back or what it is, I just I don't know that he's the right guy for this team. Facts and figures. So uh, January thirty first has come and gone, and the UK has officially left the European Union. And it kind of got me thinking: What does that mean for Liverpool as a team? I mean, when you uh, look at the news, 
you see, you know, shelves are still stocked with items, planes haven't fallen out of the sky, people are still getting paid. So it's not affecting the day-to-day -day life of people, but will it have an effect on Liverpool? Well, the question is, will it have an effect on the EPL, right? So are we going to start changing the number of quote-unquote foreign players that are allowed on a team now? Um, do players need to have work permits in order to be um, eligible to play for clubs? So those are uh, the questions that, that kind of made me uh, wonder what the future would look like for Liverpool. So I thought I'd, I'd start looking into it. Okay. I'll tell you honestly, uh, when I started, I kind of thought, you know what, this is going to be for the most part status quo. The EPL is the Premier League in the world at the moment. And why would anyone mess with that? Um, it turns out we should be afraid and we should be very afraid for Liverpool um, and for the other EPL top clubs. Um, on the on the simplest, uh, least impact end would be the exchange rate. So the UK pound actually fell uh, very heavily in 2015-2016. Uh, so right when the Brexit vote was happening and after it happened, it fell and it's kind of stabilized at those lower levels. What does that mean? It means that uh, foreign money coming in is actually worth more pounds, but at the same time, any foreign costs cost more pounds. Liverpool makes a lot of money in terms of external contracts outside the UK. So for the most part, that will probably benefit them. Um, but again, that'll probably benefit most of the teams. Maybe the smaller teams that don't have contracts outside of the UK, uh, the Norwiches of the world, they're getting broadcast revenue. That's all in pounds. Um, the They're getting match day revenue all in pounds. So you're probably talking not a lot of change for the low end, but for the bigger teams, they might actually see a bit more in terms of revenue just from the increase in exchange rate. That's all good, but that's not what scares me. Yeah, so maybe we're heading into the same direction, but I could be wrong. You're a numbers guy. I'm a football guy. I, and what's the bottom line to Liverpool Football Club? So Liverpool Football Club, probably, again, they don't show me the financials, but they will probably have a little bit more money in terms of British pounds just because of the exchange rate. Um, because, again, the British uh, pound has fallen. But on the player side, that's where it becomes a bit of a terrifying issue. So... Um, with the British pound having fallen, there have already been some rumors. Again, these are none of them are confirmed. They're just um, rumors that have been reported unofficially that some players, some of the premier players in the Premier League, are asking for contracts in euros and not in pounds because of the weaker pound. None of the rumors surround any Liverpool players, but this could potentially become in the long term a standard request for the top players in the world if they're to come to the premier league they want to be paid in euros which are essentially higher and so that could have an effect on the liverpool bottom line going forward additionally in terms of player transfers now it's one thing to pay a player it's another thing to get a player and unfortunately under the new rules it may actually be significantly harder to get a european player um, so not just a European player, but a global player. Essentially, uh, to boil down the visa rules, it would be um, to get a visa, you need to prove that you have a skill set that does not exist in 
the UK. Uh, that's very standard across many countries, so I don't want to say anything uh, bad about the UK. But for the most part, the EU is a bit more open in the way they allow immigrants, um, sorry, uh, work visas, and so uh, more people could come in. Now, people will say, well, is that really a big deal? These are professional soccer players. You know, how big a deal is it? So I actually found a statistics site, um, 538. So they do stats on tons and tons of things. They actually ran this and they have a rough estimate that says that about half of the foreign players who've transferred into the EPL since 1992 would not get in post-Brexit. What's considered a foreign player? So you're talking about any non... Non-homegrown player. Okay. So you're talking half of the foreign players since 1992 would not be allowed work visas. So just think about that. So the top of the top could prove that maybe they have a skill set that others don't, but there would be a lot of players that simply would not be able to prove that. And maybe that's not a bad thing because that's, that's how the EPL used to be in the 90s until... Um, Early 90s and 80s. Yeah, no, even even well into the 90s, I, I, I remember that teams could only have like three non-UK players or something like that. Right? So all of that makes sense if your premise for uh, the Premier League was to grow the... Uh, UK football teams if the purpose was to do better at the World Cup for the British team that's a great policy if your premise is we want the Premier League to be the best league in the world and have the best players then that is not a policy that makes you happy well, so no, I think the EPL was on its way to being the best league in the world before they opened uh, the borders with the um, European Union quite frankly so I would I would challenge that and I would say I think that was a time when if you looked at Europe you would look at the powers like Real, Serie A, uh, Serie A uh, Bayern, uh, Barca, those were the powers and the EPL was good. I think now when you look at it, you look at the fact that last year the UEFA Cup was uh, contested between two British teams uh, or two EPL teams, you look at the Champions League was contested between two EPL teams, that's a dominance. And you never had that before you started allowing all of these foreign-born players in. And so that's going to be a big change. Again, Liverpool will be able to compete domestically because all of these rules will be the same for all the teams domestically. But the foreign-born players, um, when we compete externally, so when we compete in Champions League, we may now start being at a disadvantage. Interestingly, the players that would be most disproportionately affected would be the Brazilians. So you look at Allison, you look at Firmino, and you look at Fabinho, they would be the players that would have the hardest time actually getting into an EPL team. Reason being, the way a lot of their paths work right now is that these players can go into teams in Portugal because they know the language, the culture is similar to what it is in Brazil, so their score in terms of gaining a visa there is higher and then they can take that visa and transfer it to the UK. Now that Brexit has happened, that will no longer be an option, and so those players will basically not be able to use Portugal or another country as a conduit to get to Britain. Unless they end up being the very best of the Brazilian players. Unless they end up being the very best of the Brazilian players. But that's where 
fantastic point, you're really going to hamstring the English teams, which is if you find a player who is not one of the very best, say he's a guy who's on his way up, and you are absolutely convinced that this 18-year-old is going to be an outstanding player, you're not going to be able to get him because he doesn't contain a skill set that doesn't exist in an 18-year-old in England. So your problem is going to be not the very best of the world. The problem is you're not going to be able to get the very best before they become the best. You're going to have to buy them at a premium at their highest price. So from a footballing standpoint, who benefits from Brexit? Everyone outside of the EU, essentially, because they will be able to get those uh, players who are looking like they'll be great. Um, you mean every, everyone outside of the UK? Everyone outside of the UK. Okay. Apologies. Uh, so everyone outside the UK will be able to continue picking up those younger players that have a lot of potential, working to develop them in their academies, where teams like Liverpool will not be able to do that because, again, those players will most likely not be able to get a visa. Interesting times. So it's a little bit scary. I mean, uh, you know, we, we do look at a guy like Alexander Arnold and we're happy that a, a Liverpool lad has made it through. But there are other players that have come through the Liverpool system um, and, and through other EPL systems that were acquired at a young age. And you'd like to believe that that can continue because it's so much better to get a guy... Uh, early on than it is to have to pay, you know, a hundred million pounds for him. But it looks like those options will no longer be open to EPL teams. Uh, the last point that you had mentioned is the homegrown talent. So apparently the FA is interested in creating, in adding uh, five more homegrown talent spots to the ones that they already have. So right now there need to be eight and the FA is saying that they want to be, they want to have 13. I mean, the, the whole homegrown um, rock quarter right now is a farce because they just pick names of players that will never, ever see game time for, for these teams. So that's a, a great point. Um, and absolutely, that's how they operate. Uh, I mean, you've got players like Hendo, Alexander-Arnold, Ox. Those guys are legitimate players who absolutely deserve to play. But when you take a look at the, the Liverpool team for this year, as part of their 25-player squad, they had uh, Isaac Christy Davis and Andrew Lonergan. So those two guys have not seen a minute of action, and they may never see a minute of action for Liverpool, but they're part of the 25-man squad just to make the numbers. Right. So what's going to end up happening is, this is the knock-on effect of this, is if you add more, uh, more homegrown players... You're going to end up getting rid of the foreign players and you're going to have a bench of more guys like Isaac Christie Davis or Andrew Lonergan. Um, and what you'll do is players like Ox, Hendo, Alexander-Arnold will actually become far more valuable in the EPL than they will to any other team. So instead of wasting a spot on one of these homegrown talents, you would actually have a productive player like Alexander Arnold. So if he's worth a hundred million to every other team, he might be worth 120, 150 to a Premier League team because they want to gather as many high-end uh, English players as possible, and that will essentially skew player values, making uh, Liverpool and other EPL teams work on kind of a different level in terms of player uh, value, and that won't be good in the long run for the team. Critique and commentary.
All right, so we've had uh, a lot of fun, or that is me saying I've had a lot of fun uh, talking about how great Allison is, that he's uh, the best keeper in the world. Um, and I think it's time that I sit down and I actually prove my point. Uh, again, looking at him, I think that's fairly visible, but there's other ways to analyze his performance. And so I went about trying to find those ways and trying to come up with uh, how can I show that Allison truly is not just the best goalie in the world, but that he's genuinely intimidating opposing players. Okay, let's do this. So, again, in the last few games, uh, you know, we've had instances where you take a look and guys that absolutely have chances to take shots on net just don't. Um, and so that kind of got me thinking. One of the big criticisms of Allison is that, you know, he's a great goalie, he's got a great save percentage, but he doesn't get as many shots as everyone else. And so that seems to somehow skew him that he's not working as hard or he's not as valuable to the team. But in watching these games, uh, especially the Southampton game, really got me thinking when Danny Ings had a, a chance where he basically, he didn't have a break, but he had a legitimate chance from inside the box and he was coming in and he basically didn't take the shot. Like you kind of see him start that stutter step to take his shot and instead he kind of went a bit deeper in the box and then passed it back. Uh, you can actually see that he thought about shooting and then decided against it. And I'm telling you, that is because Allison is there. So it actually got me looking into it. It actually got me looking at the numbers. Um, and so what I can say is, you know, in the subsequent games, uh, we remember the game against Norwich where Allison stopped a two-on-none, um, where you see Rupp was in basically alone, a great lob. He controlled it great. He looked up, saw Allison was there, and decided he wanted nothing to do with Allison. And so he passed it off to Pukki. Uh, to give you an idea, Allison, you know, uh, grabbed the ball away there and kind of knocked it out and that's not even considered a save so those people who make those comments that allison's great but you know he doesn't see as many shots that's a two on none that allison didn't even get credited for a shot but he made that save so just kind of think about that that shots and saves are not always the best measure um likewise this last game um against west ham where uh, antonio had a wide open shot he got in behind um, and he went to bring down the ball with the outside of his right foot instead of bringing it down with his left foot, controlling it. He was scared that Allison would be there, and so that's the intimidation factor I'm talking about. Um, we all know Allison's great. So I've looked at the stats, I've tried to compare. Um, as a general idea, Allison is better than everybody else. That's just all we need to know, and the numbers absolutely prove it. So I take a look at this current season uh, through the first 25 weeks. Allison's save percentage is at 87%. Uh, second place is Henderson at 20 at 76%. So Allison is 11% higher save percentage. That is absolutely phenomenal. That's not, again, the 76% is not the average. That's the guy in second place. And Allison's at 87%. Goals against per 90 minutes, Allison is at 0.37 and second place at 0.83. So Allison's basically half a goal better in terms of per 90 minutes. Um, I know there's a lot of um, arguments about that might be the defense, but also take a look at percentage of shots that score. Allison's at 5.5 versus 8.0, and that's De Gea. So uh, again, this is Allison being miles ahead of the guy in second place. Not miles ahead of the average. He's even further ahead of the average. But just the second place guy, his numbers are just wildly ahead of them.
is he improving as a keeper or was he this good last year and was he this this much ahead of the rest of the 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 the, uh, the, the, the goalkeepers in the EPL so last year he was ranked number 1 in these categories as well but to your point i think he's genuinely proving he was ahead but maybe not by as much as he is now he is improving as a goalie um, i don't want to say other people aren't improving but i think he's improving more than others he's definitely raised his game but that doesn't take away from the fact that last year he was the best goalie on the planet and he was in consideration for the golden boot which is almost unheard of as a keeper so i mean again he is unbelievable um, when you throw in this year, uh, another stat is that he has a 100% save percentage outside the box. So think about this as an attacking player. You have the ball, you are coming towards the net. Maybe the Liverpool defense has given you a little bit of room and you're outside the box and you're going to blast a shot. 100% of the time, Allison is stopping that shot. So it's not like he stops most of them. Basically, if you're not in the box, you're not scoring on this guy, he's going to get to that ball. Um, you know, I can think of a, a few cases in the Norwich game where uh, Puki, I think he had the ball, and he basically was outside the box, and he blasted it, put all the power he could into it, no control, and directed it straight at Allison. And, I mean, if he had at least taken a bit off of it and tried to put it in a corner, he might have had a chance. But blasting it at the goalie, I think that's an example of they know, uh, opposing players know, you have to put maximum power into that ball and you have to put it in exactly the right spot or else you're not going to beat this guy. That's pretty impressive because you know that teams that, that play against Liverpool or teams in general are usually prepared by their coaches and staff, right? So the strikers for West Ham, the Norwiches that have come up against Allison would have been prepared to know that Allison is the best goalkeeper in the league. And so this is how you have the best uh, opportunity to beat him. And yet they are still intimidated once they're confronted with this big imposing figure in black and beard. So it's, it's, so they've been told, I actually think it plays into Allison's hands. They've been told if you shoot from outside the box, it has to be maximum power and it has to be in the corner or else it's not getting in, even though, I mean, he hasn't let any in. So I think these coaches actually trying to help their players has actually hurt their players. And the reason I say that is I have seen a lot more shots uh, that that opponents take just sail wide or go harmlessly um, away. And it kind of got me thinking like these guys are almost not even following their instincts anymore. You can see it on the Ings play where he's a striker. He's in the top five in the league. When he gets the ball in the box and a lane at the net, he shoots. That's just what he does. And he's been doing it very well this year, but he didn't. You could see the hesitation. You could see that Allison is in these guys' heads. The coaches are telling them, this guy's the best in the world. You got to make your shot perfect. And I think that's intimidating, guys. And the stat that proves it. So this is the ultimate one. So, of course, at the end of the day, there's lots of shots at net. So most shots miss. And, a lot of, and some shots are on. Something like two-thirds will miss the net, about one-third will be on the net. So for my analysis, I took the, the big six in the EPL, 
because given the way some other teams play, their shots against are kind of skewed. You know, they're willing to give up shots from further away, stuff like that. So the best comparison is teams that are in the big six that generally control the ball more, um, are more susceptible to counterattacks, things like that. Their shots against um, are more similar in the way they look. So I compared the big six. Basically, um, the range for non-Allison keepers is between 34.3% and 34.7% of shots being on net. So that means 34% to 37% of shots that are taken at the net are actually on net and force a stop from the keeper. That is uh, five teams and that they're in a very, very tight range. Uh, stat statistically, that's a significant thing. If one of them was way off, uh, that would be, uh, you know, maybe lend less cre credence to the numbers. But these ones are all in a very specific range, um, with their average being just over 35, maybe 35.5% of the shots being on net. Allison changes the whole dynamic. Allison is at 31.6% of shots taken actually hit the net. So you're talking 4 to 5% less of the shots that are taken on net hit the net. And that is simply because guys are doing everything they can to put more power into the shot and place it perfectly and that is making them miss. So we've already talked about the guys um, like uh, Ings who choose not to take the shot or Rupp who decide to pass it off. So there's shots that are not being taken but even on the shots that are being taken there is a significant uh, statistical swing in terms of guys that are shooting and missing the net simply because Allison is there. So here's a million dollar question. You're one-on-one -on -one with Allison. What do you do? So if you look at the breakaway, I mean, if you're one-on-one -on -one with uh, Allison, I genuinely wonder, is it maybe worth it to just pull the ball back out because your chances of scoring may actually be less than it would be from open play. I mean, you take a look at a guy like Rupp with, Nor uh, with Norwich, who he didn't even get a shot off when he was trying to pass it to Puki. Uh, you can take a look at a guy like Bowen, who absolutely had a breakaway. Allison played it perfectly. Uh, the West Ham game took it off the face and, and basically forced the guy into a bad shot. So you're talking about a guy that, you know, when you're one-on-one -on -one with him, I actually favor Allison at this point. Where I got to say, most players, when they're one-on-one -on -one with a goalie, you got to favor the player. I'm not sure you're at that point with Allison anymore. I think a big part of it is he's positionally sound. He's quick off the line. He's got great reflexes. He knows how to make himself big. I'm also telling you part of it is guys are scared to take a run at him, and you're seeing that. I mean, you you looked at the, the highlight of Rupp when I slowed it down, and even you said, yeah, that guy decided he was not taking that shot. Yeah, he definitely was saying, okay, Pookie, you got this, right? So, I mean, that's a guy like, you got to think, these are professional players, they've been playing their whole life, I don't care what position you play in, you've been one-on-one -on -one with a goalie, and you got to love your chances, and this guy was basically saying, nah, I don't want a piece of it. So, you're right, I think coaches are preparing their players for playing against Allison, and I think they've prepared them so well that these guys are scared. They take shots at the net, and they're putting too much power on them, and they're trying to place them too perfectly that the shots are going wide. And when they have one-on-ones, they're passing the ball away instead of taking the shot. And this is the Allison intimidation factor. Absolutely, these guys are just scared, 
with good reason. Allison is the best goalie in the world, and he's going to make you look silly. Um, and guys are, are passing up what should be clean shots and clean chances. And Allison is doing more than just stopping the ball for Liverpool. He's intimidating the other team. For more stories, analysis, and articles, go to the forensicook.com website.